0: Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. And just to set that in context, recall that in the last section, our last recording, we reached the pivot point in Mark's Gospel. In part 1, the first half of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, Mark raised the question, who is Jesus in a variety of ways? And then in the very last section, Jesus asked that question of the 12. And when Jesus asked that question, Peter, and presumably the rest along with him, Peter being the spokesman for the group, Peter and the others get the answer right and wrong at the same time. They're right in that Jesus is the Messiah, but they get it wrong In that they misunderstand what being the Messiah means. So in part two, which we're really picking up here as we begin the second half of Mark's gospel. In the second half, part two... Uh, Mark turns to explore what kind of Messiah Jesus is, and then what does that mean for following him? And so over the next few chapters, Jesus is going to repeat that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to die. He's going to mention that several times over the next couple chapters. And at the end of chapter 8, not only did Jesus say that that was going to happen to him, that that's part of what it means to be the Messiah, Uh, But at the end of chapter eight, he also said that he would be vindicated and that he would come in the father's glory, that he is the son of man who will reign. So in that pivot point at the end of chapter eight, you get both his rejection and death and his glorification. In fact, in chapter nine, verse one, which was the last verse in our last recording, Jesus said that the kingdom will come with power in the lifetime of those people standing there. Well, in the story then that follows here, beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, three of Jesus' disciples and us along with them as readers get a glimpse of Jesus' full glory. This story is usually known as the Transfiguration because Jesus' appearance was changed for a moment. And this is like a glimpse into the glorification of Jesus that these uh, three disciples with Jesus receive. In fact, if we recall that Mark's gospel comes from uh, Peter, like Peter is the one whom Mark was writing on behalf of, well, Peter actually refers to this event in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he says there. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 and following says, For we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power "...and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." Notice that language, power and coming. Some of those same phrases that are used at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. And so he says, we were eyewitnesses of that. When was he an eyewitness? Well, for when when he received honor and glory from the Father, such a declaration as this was made to him by the majestic glory... This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is Peter's reference to the event that happens here in Mark chapter 9. Here's the way that event unfolded Mark 9, verse 2 says, and six days later, six days refers to six days after. Peter's confession of Christ as Messiah that showed up at the end of chapter 8. And and six days is very specific, and specific time references are actually rare in Mark. And when they occur, they usually indicate some sort of key connection uh, with whatever preceding section we're connecting it to. And so, for example, Mark chapter 4, verse 35 on that day when evening came indicates a connection between that very same day where Jesus taught parables and the event of the coming of the storm. And so here with these this connection, six days, well, this connects us with the preceding story and evidences that Mark understood Jesus' promise that some of the disciples would have a unique experience of his coming and his glory is fulfilled, at least partially, in this event. One side note before we move on and that is this, in Luke's account it says about eight days later. Here it says six days later and that likely just has to do with various ways of counting days from starting point to ending point and Luke is a little more generic with about eight days later. So there's a little bit of a difference there. But it seems to have to do with specific ways of counting the days in between these events. So let's continue in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, Notice that he took Peter, James, and John, they were his inner circle of disciples and Often they were invited into some of these special moments like this. He took them with him, it says, to a high mountain. And we don't know the exact location of this. Traditionally, it has been uh, seen as Mount Tabor, because Mount Tabor, if you look at a picture on a map, it actually stands out from the surrounding countryside, although it's technically not that high. Um, What might be more likely than Mount Tabor is Mount Hermon, Because it's the highest mountain in the area, and it was actually not far from Caesarea Philippi, which is the last place Jesus was noted as being. So, it's possible it's that. We just don't know for sure. Here's what we do know. Mountains are often places of divine revelation in the Bible, And there is likely an echo of Moses' mountain experience when he went up on Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments, came down from the mountain, and his appearance was changed, and he was shining with radiant glory, and so he veiled his face after that. And so there's likely an echo of that experience here. But as we'll see, uh, this story points out that Jesus is greater than Moses. And so... There they go, up on the mountain, and Jesus' appearance is transfigured, which simply just means his his appearance was changed. That's all that means, all right? And so, uh, how was his appearance changed? Well, keep reading. Verse 3, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. This is Mark's way of simply saying, like, like, it, this was beyond anything we could conceive of on our own, like radiantly white. And then verse four, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And so there they are on the, the mountain and all of a sudden Jesus's appearance is transformed. He's radiate, radiant. His clothing is like bright, shiny white. And all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are there and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having a conversation. Now, Elijah was supposed to appear before the coming of Messiah, and he stands at the head of the prophets. Moses is the giver of the law, and the Messiah was supposed to be a prophet like him. And so you have the law and the prophets, you have these two people who are associated with the coming of the Messiah, and they there are with Jesus and they're having this conversation. Well, this is a crazy moment. And Peter can't contain himself, and he says something without thinking. Look at verse 5. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles, or tents. That's the idea of tabernacles, three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know how to reply, for they became terrified. So they are awestruck and terrified in this moment, and without thinking... Peter says, we should build some tents for everybody here. When we put this together with Luke's gospel, we realize this event's most likely happening at night. The apostles are actually sleeping when this happens. And so maybe Peter's thinking, oh man, these guys might need a tent to sleep in. Who knows? But it's a crazy thing to think of. I mean, like these guys have been dead for a long time. This is not a unique moment. They don't need tents or anything like that. So Peter, overcome by the moment, wants to... pitch tents for them to stay in. Maybe he thinks he's even honoring Moses and Elijah and Jesus. It's just that's not what this event is all about. Peter should have slowed down and thought a little bit. Well, in that moment then, here's what happens. Verse 7, then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud Cloud A cloud has conveyed God's presence throughout the Old Testament. A cloud was involved in Moses' mountaintop experience on Mount Sinai. And so too here, this cloud comes and overshadows them. And God speaks from the cloud. This is what he says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, recall, this is what Peter had said in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 there, where this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so here we get the same thing. Peter recalling this event, Mark writing it down. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them ex- except Jesus alone. When Mark had launched the part one of his gospel, God spoke similar words to Jesus at his baptism. You are my son. Now he says the same thing, but to the three disciples who are there on the mountain, And the emphasis is on the supremacy of Jesus. It's not Moses plus Elijah plus Jesus, but it's Jesus. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's chosen one. And in a very real sense, this confirms what Peter said a week ago when Peter had said, you are the Christ of God. And so God speaking to Peter, James and John says, this is my son. He is the one you are seeing his glory listen to him. And Jesus, if you recall, had been challenging the 12 over the last few chapters to see and hear. Do you, are your hearts dull? Are your minds unclear? Do you not see? Do you not hear? He's been challenging the 12 on this. Well, now God speaks from heaven, emphasizing that they need to hear him. They need to pay close attention and listen to Jesus. And the point is, is that his words are now the supreme words that they need to listen to over against Moses and Elijah. Well, as they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, and as I noted, uh, Luke's account in Luke chapter 9 says this event happened at night and that they came down from the mountain the next day. And so here they are coming down from the mountain the day after that event, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And once again, we get this allusion to his impending death in the phrase, rise from the dead. And they're still struggling to grasp this possibility. It doesn't fit their categories. They, they don't know what to do with it. So look how they respond. Verse 10. They seized upon that statement about rising from the dead, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And it's just important for us to remember that they had no category for what was gonna happen to Jesus. It, it, It didn't fit their preconceived expectations of the Messiah. It doesn't fit with how they understood the resurrection, right? The resurrection was supposed to be an end of time event in Jewish theology, not one that would happen to one particular person in the middle of history. And so their theological categories just had no place for this. And they're trying to figure out what Jesus meant. And as they're having that conversation about rising from the dead and what that means, that leads to another conversation or another topic, and that's Elijah. As they're wrestling with Jesus being the Messiah and all the questions that they now have because of what he's been saying, his Messiahship is going to look like, well, the subject of Elijah coming before the Messiah arises. He was, Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah. So, verse 11, they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Uh, Obviously, they had just seen Jesus with Elijah and Moses. And so I'm sure that sparked this question a little bit. And they're just trying to put it all together. And if Jesus is inaugurating his kingdom, well, then where do the prophecies about Elijah coming fit in? Was this event on the mountain? Was that Elijah coming? I'm sure they're just wrestling with how to put all of this together. And Jesus answers in verse 12, and he said to them, Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. That was the promise out of the Old Testament. And so Jesus assures them that the scribes are right. Elijah does come first. But then Jesus explains some things uh, that further clarify what it means. Like, what does it mean for Elijah to come first? Um, Just like Jesus being the Messiah meant something different than they expected, well, Elijah's coming is going to be a little different than they expected too. So here's what Jesus says. And yet, so Elijah does come, and yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? This appears to be a rhetorical question to remind them that his vocation as Messiah is different than expected. And so whatever Elijah's coming and restoring means, they should expect that to be different too. So the scribes are right. And yet the son of man, his, his, uh, his coming isn't going to be the way they expect it to be. Well, guess what? Elijah's coming isn't either. So he says in verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written of him. And so Jesus does tell them that, look, Elijah actually has already come. Now, it's not explicit here as it is in Matthew 17, 13. But Jesus, when he says Elijah's come, is referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So you could see that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Luke chapter 1, 17, or Luke 3, 4. I'll point in this direction. Matthew 17, 13, I already mentioned. So John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. And doing to him whatever they wanted refers to John the Baptist's arrest and execution. How does it fit then in the flow of thought? Well, I think that but at the beginning of verse 13, which is actually the word Allah in Greek, so it's a strong contrast, but nevertheless. And so I think that nevertheless or that but suggests this flow of thought. Elijah does come to restore all things. But as I've been telling you, the son of man is going to be treated with contempt. But Elijah has come and they treated him badly too. In other words, it doesn't look the way you thought, but it is happening. Well, that finishes the conversation on the walk down the mountain, and they get back down to the bottom of the mountain. And here's what they find. Verse 14 when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Scribes are teachers of the law. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And it doesn't specify why they were amazed. Maybe there's some lingering hints of the glory from the moment on the mountain, who knows? We're not sure why, or maybe they're just amazed because he had been gone, now he's here, and they're excited that he's there. They come up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you disputing with them? In other words, what are you uh, disputing with the 12, with the disciples that are there? What are you arguing about? What are you arguing with the scribes about? And one person, verse 17, from the crowd answered, "Teacher." I brought you my son because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and he becomes stiff. I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they couldn't do it. Now, they should have been able to do it. The disciples had been given authority over demons in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus had given them that. But for some reason, they weren't able to. They had failed. Now, Mark highlights at the end of this story the importance of prayer, suggesting that maybe lack of prayer was the reason for the failure. Uh, but for whatever reason, they couldn't uh, cast out this demon. Jesus says this in verse 19 he answered them and said oh unbelieving generation how long shall i be with you how long shall i put up with you bring him to me jesus here seems to be exasperated with his disciples failure and in his exasperation he lumps them in with the whole lot of unbelieving israel like Come on, guys, I gave you this power. You need to be able to carry on this ministry. But Jesus' exasperation doesn't lead to rejection. Instead, it leads to action. Look what happens. Verse 20, they brought the boy to Jesus. When he, the boy, saw him, Jesus, the spirit immediately threw him into convulsions and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, it has often thrown him both in the, into the fire and into the water to kill him. So Jesus has them bring the boy to him. When the spirit inside the boy sees Jesus, it uh, throws the boy into convulsions. Jesus gets the data from his dad about what's been going on. And In that context, as the the father is telling Jesus how long this has been happening, here's what he says. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Um, And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so Jesus, I imagine with a hint of compassion, says to the man, Uh, If you can, quoting his words, and the point is to call this man and then implicitly us as readers too, to trust God, that God has the ability, if we'll just trust him. And in this man's case, he's heard the reports of Jesus' miraculous power. And so if you can, and immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This is really a great response and an incredible prayer. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that's often where we find ourselves, isn't it? With, I believe, and yet I know I need to believe more. Would you help my unbelief? And that's where this father is at. He's come to Jesus for help. He does believe. He just needs help with his unbelief. And Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And so Jesus speaks words uh, of authority to the spirit, calling the spirit to leave. Um, And verse 26, and after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But even though he appeared to be dead, he wasn't. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. And Jesus then gave the boy back to his father and went on. And here's what happens in the wake of that. One of the things we see a lot of in the second half of Mark's gospel is Jesus's personal and private interaction with the disciples. Well, that's what happens here. Verse 28, when he came into the house, wherever they're staying, whatever house they're at, when he came into the house, his disciples began asking him privately, why is it that we couldn't cast it out? And so they're in a house where they're staying. It's private. It's private. And Jesus continues to instruct the disciples who, remember, they get the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and they need to understand who Jesus really is, what his messiahship means, what that means for them. He's preparing them for their ministry following him. And so we get uh, many notes like this in the second half of Mark's gospel. And so they want to know, why couldn't they cast it out? Verse 29, here's the, the only answer Jesus gives them as recorded in Mark's gospel. He said to them, This kind cannot come out but by anything except prayer. Now, just a couple notes. This kind. This kind suggests that there are different kinds of demons or different kinds of demonic oppression. And it reminds us there's a lot of stuff that we don't always understand about the spiritual realm. Um, That there are... uh, their spiritual powers and authorities that are different and they oppress or possess in different ways. And so Jesus says this particular kind cannot come out by anything except prayer, Uh, implying that the reason the disciples couldn't cast it out had something to do with the lack of prayer, the kind of prayer. It's not totally clear exactly, um, but that they needed to uh, pray more or something like that in order to be able to cast out this kind of demon. Now, let me just offer a couple of reflections on these two stories before we wrap it up. The first is just on the transfiguration story with Jesus there on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. Um One of the points of that is that Jesus is the culmination of the biblical story, that it's all been leading up to him. Uh, The law and the prophets have been culminating or pointing towards Jesus and now he's come and so now God speaks, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He is the culmination of the story. The story finds its, its culminating moment in him. And that event also points out that as the culmination of the story, Jesus is the one that's greater than both Moses and Elijah, that his word is the final word. Uh, As the author of Hebrews said that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Um, He is God's final word, uh, his greatest revelation. And so he's the culmination of the story. He's greater than Elijah and Moses. Hear him. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Listen closely. Seek to understand him and his teaching. Uh, Hearing and listening in a Jewish thought world also includes heeding. And so you really only hear the message when you heed the message. And so listen to him. Do what he says. Put it into practice. Trust him. And In the the story here about the casting out of demon, that's going to include prayer. Like this kind can only come out by prayer. And we need to be men and women who pray and pray regularly. So trust him and pray and live in fellowship with him on a regular basis as you seek to understand him and walk in his ways.